Well, welcome back. As we head into Hour 3, it is a delight to do so, as we most often do with the former mayor of Tempe in studio, Hugh, Hugh Holman. He is uh, an attorney in town, an educator, and um, he has now met the people who record, uh, have the recording of our intro music there. He has met the Saunas Brothers, whose version of Birdland we come up with. You, uh, you, you and I got to enjoy them a little bit this weekend in person. I met them previously, in fact. Half of them. Well, that's true. Only half of the brothers. Yeah. <laughs> Only half Watch of the, the brothers. pronouns. <laughs> Only half of the brothers' sonnets. Yeah, yes. A, brothers a he, sonnets. not a they. Yes, yes, exactly. And you are off to hike Scotland. I am. That's going to be so much fun. I certainly hope so. We will find out. It is a 32nd anniversary trip yeah. to hike across. That's a, that's a, a short anniversary, Scotland. 30 seconds. Uh, yes, it is. <laughs> we, we live a lot of life quickly. Uh, we previously had walked across England, which yeah. was fascinating, about 190 miles from west to east, and liked it so much because it is calming. It is frequently away from cell towers, so uh, I cannot be interrupted in some pieces of time, thank goodness. And so having a, a nice little restful opportunity is is a, a real blessing. I was listening to uh, the actor Andrew McCarthy talking on the Adam Carolla show uh, yesterday, I think it was, or was it today? And he did what, Bill, a 500-mile walk, I think he said, with his son. He was doing a 500-mile walk. And he said the thing he discovered is it's possibly the best way to have a conversation with someone not doing the eye-to-eye, face-to-face over a long period of time. Uh, also found it tremendously therapeutic. But, yes. Yeah. Well, as you know, running, uh, for those of us who are older, at least in my case, I don't have a conversation pace, which yeah, is the pace that. one is supposed to run uh, to be able to continue to converse. There is no such thing for me. Once I'm in the run mode, I can't, I can't speak uh, or uh, uh, have a conversation. The walking bit is delightful and... Uh, Depending on the topography, it it can be easily accomplished, and I'm looking forward to that as well. Have you been to Scotland before? I was to Scotland last 35 years ago. Okay, so before you were married. I was once. uh, We took a um, a, a unauthorized spring trip, a spring break there, uh, some buddies and me. uh, We were studying over at LSC and took an unauthorized uh, week off. That's the London School of Economics for those who are not into acronyms. Yes, that's right. And not all of us can say we studied at the LSE. The only thing I wanted to do was go to Loch Ness. It's the only thing I cared about, which we did. And boy, is it disappointing. Have it, it, it's, they don't take it seriously over there. So I walked away thinking, why should I? Correct. I mean, yeah. if you if you're not it's a big actually, mockery to them, of course. If you, you you put some quarters into the duck food yeah. feeder and get out some of the the Loch Ness monster food, and you hold <laughs> it out and hope that the Nessie <laughs> shows up, and when she doesn't, you know you're kind of disappointed. The only thing it lacked was one of those Disneyland fake hippopotamuses coming yes. up. They ought to do that. They could generate some more tourism. wiggling the ears. Yeah, yes. something yes. like uh-huh. that. That's something. only when they're going to attack. Something like that. And then of course the scotch was uh, was easily available because that's obviously where it's from. And then we ended really? up. In the Lake District, which was gorgeous. I can imagine. But and I wish you a happy trip. That'll thank be you. Fun. I'm hopeful that we will walk uh, through the Lake District, but I don't actually know exactly where the walk's going to take place. We're going to go 85 miles over about six days. And uh, I think the Lake nice. District is not Scotland proper. It was just kind of we had to wind around to get to it, but it was outside. Well, if you mean the English Lake District, yeah, yeah, I yeah, walked yeah, through yeah, that. My 200-mile yeah. walk Isn't that the about Lake the most District. gorgeous thing in it's the world? stunning. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But the the uh, mountain ranges were great. It was really a, a beautiful thing to do. 
and not very expensive. That's what I like about it is I'm cheap. I'm relatively cheap. So uh, other than the airfare getting there, it's not very expensive. We did it cheap. We did it uh, – we went through these youth – we stayed at youth hostels, which I think are Maoist work camps, modeled after Maoist work camps. You couldn't leave in some of these places. You couldn't leave until you mopped the floor. That was the price of exiting or mopped the floor after 25 people had done it. It was, you know, work makes you free kind of thing. I, I hated it. Thus constitutes the end of our Anglophile discussion here without mention and without some kind of unctuous uh, deference to the coronation, which I think we overdid in this country. Well, I just thought uh, that a fellow, who sh- that. a fellow who shows up in a purple jumpsuit yeah. with a long flowing um, uh, coat or, or uh, cape uh, made of fur uh, and with a fascinating fuzzy hat looked a lot like Prince. Yeah. Yeah. And I was thinking he could break out and do some, you know, uh, performance. His uh, grandson did uh, on uh, on the balcony, but uh, we don't have to go into it any further. Yeah, because we don't do that here. We fought a revolution not to do that here. Correct. And I, I, I'm I, I'm a little bothered by how much how much uh, admiration people here have for that. I I I. I Go it's ahead. not admiration. It's interest. It is a fascinating human condition thing that that uh, that takes place. There are many other countries on the planet that have uh, royalty, kings and queens and uh, various uh, sorts of things. Uh, and uh, we don't pay that much attention to it. But it is because it is so closely related to our founding, I suspect, that we still have this admiration. In addition, I think it has something to do with the last monarch yeah. that Queen Elizabeth yeah, served so. in a role – that was remarkable in many, many ways, and the respect that she generated from that, uh, I think, is carried over to her son. All right. Let's talk about the problems we have in our Republican form of government here, for which we fought against all that, because we have a few, don't we? We do. Uh, we can start with education, or we can start, start with, with just— education. Uh, so the. Uh, the headlines from last week uh, were, for me, twofold in education, demonstrating how crazy things continue to be. And so, ladies and gentlemen, if you want to engage in a very productive place in our society right now, engage with your school district, engage on a school board, with the school board, and engage by running for school board, because we clearly have a lack of solid leadership in a number of school boards. The first is the Phoenix Union School District School Board uh, voted last week not to go forward and reinstitute school resource officers, notwithstanding that seven months before they had appointed a security committee to review uh, the need for school resources officers and their application. And seven months of work by these folks recommended that school resource officers be reintroduced to the school district and the board punted one more time. Well, they'd punted one month before last April, uh, in April, a month ago. They refused to adopt a recommendation. So rather than adopt a recommendation or turn it down flatly, they just keep pretending that they're still considering it. And I think what this does for us is demonstrate a lack of leadership at the Phoenix Union uh, uh, School District. And the interviews with a couple of the school board members demonstrated a complete lack of understanding of issues or ability to articulate what those issues meant. And that strikes me as a demonstration that the Phoenix Union uh, School Board desperately needs some leaders. And when one looks at the polling of parents in that district, overwhelmingly, 80% of them want school resource officers reintroduced. And yet this school board cannot 
adopt that concept. Because why? Well, it would fly in the face of the uh, police officers are murdering uh, everyone uh, in our country, uh, that they're dangerous, we need to defund them, uh, and all of that mantra... It's a hostile been, learning environment. Correct. Yeah. We, that mantra that's been going on now for two years, such that even during COVID, when uh, Anthony Fauci was assuring us that we all needed to be locked down for our self-preservation, we had a huge number of people saying, oh, no, no, unless you're protesting racism... And the application of police officers to schools and the uh, high risk that we all have from being in the presence of a police officer that you can protest systemic racism. They uh, said, uh, yes, a, a thousand doctors signed a letter saying uh, protesting systemic racism. Systemic racism is as bad as covid and thus uh, the mitigation of shelter in place or the lockdowns and shutdowns and no, no mass gatherings should be lifted for those purposes. Correct. Particularly in California, where the lockdowns were the most severe. So now we have this juxtaposition of crazy activity for two years with COVID. And then we have uh, a school board that can't get out of its own way and recognize that do school resource officers stop shootings on campus? No. The data is pretty clear about that. But they reduce all kinds of other violence that takes place on schools. In addition, good school resource officers that are well-trained improve the relationship between students and police such that we can improve our society and those students can then look upon police officers, in my view, with a proper view of a role in society of providing protection, that they are people you can turn to in emergencies. That is not something apparently that this school board thinks is an important lesson. And tying to your uh, monologue from the first hour, we are in uh, in an environment in which we are training students really about horrible lessons that they shouldn't learn in the first instance. Thanks, Hugh. Um, you know, one of the things about school resource officers is, you know, there is every good reason to have more adults on a campus than not. More ears, more eyeballs, and possibly even in, especially this day and age, more mentors of which school resource officers can serve. It's really a bad idea to eliminate them from the campus. It's really a bad idea to isolate them away from the children. It's really a bad idea not to have more adults around the children rather than fewer, especially in the school environment, and especially when they represent law enforcement. That's you and I come back uh, in just a few moments. I'm Seth Leibson. He's Hugh Hallman, and we will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. Hugh Hallman is uh, my guest. He has, uh, of course, uh, represented as the mayor of Tempe for two terms. He has uh, active law practice. He has built schools both here and abroad, great ones. And we were talking a little bit about uh, some news about schools and education. One last point on school resource officers, if I might, Hugh. Um, I was making the point about having more adult eyeballs and eardrums uh, on, on school campuses um, can also be very helpful in picking up students um, uh, on the process of not just uh, really academic failure, which you would hope the administration and teachers do, but social failure and social self-harm and being able to pick up on that and help report that up the chain and hopefully to the parents and preventing some of those problems too. Absolutely. So two concepts there. So as headmaster, for example, of, of a very successful school group, um, part of what I did was engage with students in a way that I picked up chatter yeah. on things that I could impact. And so when I got a sense that a student was trying or involved with drugs or alcohol, I would contact parents 
and ask to come see them at home night or weekend and then sit with them and explain, look, I believe and you need to check into. I've gathered some data that suggests that your child may be engaging in, the, in these behaviors. Typically, the answer is, oh, no, 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 not our kid. And then I'd get a phone call a couple of weeks later. How did you know? Yeah. Well, the point I was making to the parents in the first visit is if I knew, I would have to expel your child. The reason I'm reporting to you now is I don't have enough data to make that decision. And you can find out and do something about it. Here are resources you can get to. And, oh, no, not my kid. And then, of course, they would later confess, not confess, but so much as explain what was going on and and what we could do to help. The reason that's important is you're correct. Lots of chatter is going on on a school campus where you can learn about students who are at risk, family problems, other things. And maybe the engagement helps. It might not, but it can. You've at least got a chance to engage. The... Before the break, I mentioned that the data suggests that school resource officers don't really prevent gun violence, mass shootings, shootings. and the reason for that is lots of chatter goes on about sort of stuff that might cause someone to think that a child is going in that direction. But these are such random and such rare events that when you consider the fact that we have millions of kids around this country and some of them are engaging in that kind of behavior, including joking about it on, on campus just last week. One of our local high schools had a student dressed in a coat, wearing a mask and banging on windows, thinking that they were, you know, pretending to, you know, in some kind of joke. And instead, the school got shut down. Mm-hmm. That's a major incident. Well, it turns out it wasn't a serious threat. But how do you know? Right. There's certainly now and most recently you'll see studies uh, or information coming out about AI, artificial intelligence being used to sort of monitor kids' exchanges on social media to see if they can start identifying those kids who really are at risk to engage in that behavior. But for now, it's so random and so rare that school resource officers aren't really equipped. Human beings are not equipped to sort out billions of data points to find those handful that are real. So that's why it's it's not a big issue But by the same token, the numbers of violent acts that are precluded, prevented, and interventions that are engaged in by school resource resource officers is clearly demonstrated. Mm -hmm. But apparently that's not enough. Well, you're not stopping school shootings. Well, let's be real here. The fad um, that that is being engaged in – in this and so many other areas, is if you can't solve everything, then they shouldn't be used at all. Well, school resources resource officers don't solve every problem, but they solve a huge number of problems. And there are examples where school board members stood up against the mob and required school resource officers to be uh, retained. And so I have to give it to a, a school board member at the Tempe Union High School District, Burdetta Hotch, who comes from an example of the left side of the universe, stood against that. That mob and sought and retained school resource officers be engaged in the Tempe Union High School District. That's a great model and should be rewarded uh, with respect and appreciation. But it is because we have these um, games that are being played with so many issues, fetishes, if you will, to, to steal from your uh, monologue in the first hour, that school resource officers are the uh, battering ram, the bludgeon point for all these crazy people wanting to point to George Floyd and that incident as indicative of police officers. It is not. Is it inexcusable? Is it outrageous? Absolutely. But I know too many police officers. I've engaged too much with police uh, on a broad basis 
to, rec- to, to think that that is indicative. It is not indicative. And we should stop using the most extreme examples of bad behavior as indicative of a greater crowd. Huh, doesn't that sound like something? Let's not use bad examples of a particular group of people as the indicator of what that entire crowd is like. Hmm. That is, I believe, what this society was based on until a few years ago. And now every Republican is the crazy person calling Bill Gates and threatening him with murder. Every Republican is that kind of thing. But we're not supposed to engage in that, right? Wasn't that, wasn't that the lesson from the left? And now the left engages in that behavior to the point that every person in this country is systemically racist implicitly and there's biased yes implicitly biased and there's nothing you can do about it by definition if you don't think you're biased you must be right and that's the craziness we're now engaged in in this sort of fetishistic behavior where we paint entire groups of people with a brush and tar and feather them in a way that is completely anathema to the entire discussion and concept of what this society is based on for the prior 300 years. Yeah, I've always wondered if this implicit bias runs so broadly and so deeply, uh, what the point of hiring DEI officers and having these um, human resource conferences, hiring Robin D'Angelo to teach them and lecture and coach them on, uh, how will they know if it's something you can't see and can't touch and can't feel and can't witness and can't observe? How will they know if they've ever succeeded? And I think that's kind of the trick in the game here is you will never succeed. You just have to have this endless a cons- endless loop of a conspiracy that it just has to be tamed. And There's never enough resources exactly. to solve the problem. Yeah. Yeah. And moving toward excellence is not sufficient because you can never get there. Right. Uh, and the the implicit bias, uh, one asks the question, then isn't that also true for the lecturers in their instances? How would they know? How, that, they know? That, that, yes. like How are they qualified to teach? Yeah, what? It's like clear code on your yeah. car. <laughs> That's right. That's the clear code on your car. That's exactly right. Speaking of schools uh, and bias. Is it bias? Here yeah, because there is bias and there is bias. And we found some tangible bias. And it's going to cost a school district $25,000 for engaging in some anti-Christian bigotry that we talked about here, the Washington Elementary School, which uh, refused or, I'm sorry, canceled the contract uh, to have student teachers uh, from Arizona Christian University in a clear case, in a blatant case, of religious uh, discrimination, and the ADF uh, rolled up its sleeves and said, not on our watch, and uh, the Washington Elementary School District backed down, I think, all school board members but one. The leader of the charge in the first instance. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about that when we come right back. I'm Seth Leibson. He's Hugh Hallman. We'll be right back. In all the talk about bias and bigotry, uh, the Washington uh, Elementary School District, is, is, which I think is part of Phoenix Union, if I'm not mistaken, uh, up in uh, the kind of uh, north uh, northwest part of the valley, right, towards Peoria, uh, they canceled the contract with Arizona Christian University, which provided them student teachers 
based on the premise that the teachers would make an uncomfortable learning environment for the students because the teachers were Christian and or, and or came from a Christian university and would not be able to, let's say, leave their religious beliefs at the schoolhouse door uh, on the one hand and on the second that just the very notion that they attended a university which believed that marriage needed to be between one man and one woman based on their interpretation of the Bible uh, was in and of itself ipso facto uh, per se evidence of creating hostile learning environments for the students. All that contract canceled based on no evidence of that actually ever having happened over the last, I think, decade and a half where they have been supplying those teachers. So the Alliance Defending Freedom sued uh, the school district, and this week the school district relented, right? They uh, settled the case for the costs of attorney's fees, which ran about 25000 bucks, and uh, embarrassed themselves and fouled their own nest. You know, the, the, we, we talk about Teacher Appreciation Week or Teacher Appreciation Month, and it's to me it's important to understand that uh, – Everyone is really who's involved in education, all the adults involved in education, whether they want it or not, they're teaching lessons, some good, some bad. This was a really bad lesson the school board engaged in. Well, what I find fascinating is the way in which they strung together uh, pearls in order to uh, go against or go after this particular uh, university students. So they first had to dig into the university's philosophy and argue that that philosophy must be carried, therefore, by the students and those student teachers then coming into the classroom of the Washington uh, Elementary School District couldn't divorce themselves from that philosophy. And uh, Tamala Valenzuela, the leading school board who ran the led the charge, holds herself out as. Uh, yeah, I can't remember. She is. Uh, she had a lot of different multi ethnic uh, adjectives. A lot of adjectives. Uh, to indicate that she is uh, a one off, and that of course that what I find interesting is will be the conclusion in a minute. But here's. Tamila Valenzuela, saying, quote, the institution has policies that are openly bigoted, and I will not sit here as a member of the community and let our children be subjected to that, right. unquote. So what she is saying is that the policies that the university have in its handbook, referring to marriage being between a man and a woman and other kinds of things that are Christian values that she points to, that those students would carry those values with them and then teach them into the classroom which is, of course, an expression of implicit bias. So what she is asserting is that student teachers and ultimately any teacher is unable to divorce themselves from their own political or religious philosophy. Then why does she think that that only applies to people from a Christian university? That's right. That's right. So what she really wants to do is make sure that only her philosophy gets taught in a classroom because she clearly has a, has a preferred philosophy that – Every teacher must be assumed to be teaching a philosophy, uh, underlying philosophy, and therefore let's adopt hers. So let's have that debate, lady, because at the end of the day, most parents in that school district aren't interested in the philosophy you want to teach. They want their, teach their children taught about math and science and how to read and how to write, perhaps, and maybe a little bit about art and, and divorce it generally from any particular political philosophy with some exceptions and that major exception might be things like let's perhaps teach the constitution and the uh, concepts on which this country is founded maybe some parents might be uh, particularly uh, hot about that uh, but 
I'm not quite sure why we wouldn't want to do that. I think you point out in your monologue, we have uh, been uh, self-flagellating here uh, in our society for the last uh, two or three years, that we are an inherent racist society and that the founding of this country is not uh, based on the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution that resulted uh, later on, uh, but that it only can mark itself from 1619, and that the only defining feature of this country is that it once entertained and engaged in slavery. A minority of people did that. It was a small proportion of our country that engaged in that. A majority of the people uh, did not agree with that concept and worked diligently against it to the point that we had a civil war and 600,000 people lost their lives in that battle over whether or not all individuals should be deemed free. Nicely put. And there's another interesting point you made that hadn't occurred to me that the school board member delivered in the form of a tell and a a, a quiet part out loud, if you will, when she uh, just assumes that teachers are going to bring their philosophy into the classroom, which has been our complaint the whole time. Keep it all out. I'm Seth. He's Hugh. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Hugh Hallman is my guest. He is the former mayor of Tempe. He's an attorney here in town, an educator. And one of the things he also was, was uh, very involved in the 1984 campaign to reelect Ronald Reagan. Um, and you knew a lot of the people that were involved in that ad I was discussing yesterday, the Morning in America ad, that great 1984 Hal Riney ad. The two greatest ads of the year were that and the Bear in the Woods, right? Which was also voiced by, by Hal Hal, Ry- Hal Riney. Uh, just it was yeah. a. I I feel blessed that I was involved with people who understood that President Reagan's genius was the ability to bring people together, notwithstanding the attacks that were leveled at him constantly and continuously. He ignored them and rose above it. And reached out to everyone. That's why by 1984, we had Reagan Democrats in a large number. So I I had the pleasure of hosting an event, putting together an event in Los Angeles. Uh, Why? Because we we were behind in only two states. President Reagan ultimately won 49 out of 50 states. The only state he didn't win was Minnesota, and that was because his uh, opponents, uh, to to take a Joe Biden moment, his opponent, uh, that was (laughs) Walter Mondale's home state. But we were behind in California, and it was going to be embarrassing if the president lost his home state. And so I spent a lot of extra time out in California in the last couple of months, and we hosted an event. The lead speaker was Gene Kirkpatrick, the leading Democrat supporting President Reagan. Mm -hmm. And the room was filled with Democrats for Reagan-Bush. I had Teamsters. I had uh, teachers. I had blacks for Reagan-Bush when that was the word. Uh, We had Estonians. for. We had an entire (laughs) room full of every cross-section of America, labor for uh, Reagan-Bush, et cetera, that were all Democrats saying, yeah, we hear you, Walter, but we're voting for the man. To quote from a billboard we had all over uh, southern Los Angeles uh, with Floyd Patterson and and a few other great boxers on the poster, poised boxing stance saying we're voting for the man. That was the approach to big tent, reach out to everybody and say we are not going to divide. We are going to unite 
under this banner called the American flag for everyone. And I think that's what really is captured in, in Morning in America. Yeah, and the distinction between Morning in America's ad campaign and the one Joe Biden unveiled yesterday, um, the flag campaign. Now, a little audio for the audience just for nostalgia and Please relevance. Bring tears this to is from uh, Hal Reine's 1984 ad. And under the leadership of President Reagan, our country is prouder and stronger and better. Why would we ever want to return to where we were less than four short years ago? That was uh, Hal Reine doing the end of the ad. And, uh, just a note, that entire ad right. is about Americans across the country and the successes that they're all enjoying because things had moved out of the toilet that President Reagan had inherited and were moving forward and people were doing better. And the message was... We are all in this together. We need to continue moving forward. We're, we're not finished with the job. Let's finish the job. And it was a different America in some respects, too. But the ad, um, in, in some ways, such a better America because and – the, and the ad took the opportunity, as I was making the point yesterday, to um, – I don't know if the word would be exploit, but to highlight some of what made America so great. One fourth of the ad was about church and marriage. Celebrate what celebrate what was good about America. One fully one fourth of that one minute ad highlighted churches and marriages. Um, And families, yeah, what and families and families. In 1984, marriage rates were 40 percent higher than today, and church attendance was two thirds higher than it is today. Think about that. Think about how far we've come. From that to Joe Biden's flag ad, which gives you. But they're under attack by an extreme movement that seeks to overturn elections, ban books, and eliminate a woman's right to choose. Joe Biden has made defending our basic freedoms the cause of his presidency. Just picking apart at those cultural wounds and cultural scabs, banning books, that's absolute nonsense. The rest is, you know, I, you know. Well, those crazy Republicans are all about banning books. If there are books that are not available to be purchased online or at a bookstore or checked out at a library, I am telling you right now, they are conservative books. All of the books that they continue to say are banned are available within minutes through uh, the download on Amazon or Barnes & Noble, are available within a day on Amazon and Barnes & Noble, and are available at every bookstore in every city in almost every state in this country, if not every state in this country. I've seen them here. I've seen them at the bookstore over on Central. They're all available. This notion that they're banned is absurd. What they're talking about is highly sexualized books that are effectively child porn not being available to five-year-olds and six-year-olds and seven-year-olds, just like pornographic movies shouldn't be available to five-year-olds or six-year-olds or seven-year-olds. We don't say we're banning movies in America because we do that. And this is part of this entire fetish concept that we need to now use our children to advance the cause. But let's let's go back first to the ad and then to the global point. These two ads demonstrate the difference between a then-deemed elderly president at age 73 Ronald Wilson Reagan, who was criticized for his age by the left, Mm -hmm. and a guy who's 80 years old, fumbling, stumbling, and having a grave difficulty. I don't wish that on anybody. But the reality is, the press corps has been protecting that 
in contrast to their attacks on President Reagan for being too old at age 73, that Joe Biden is in his prime at age 80 and having a uh, press staff interrupting interviews with him to protect him from his inability to remember the name of his predecessor. Um, So in that context, we have a very different problem and a very different approach. And that's a shame. But in terms of the fetishes we're engaging in, as you were talking about banning books, well, the, the left has been beating some drums that are quite incredible. We talked about it last week that we have... Um, the left pushing very, very hard to normalize children deciding that they're in the wrong body because their minds are of a different gender. Now, I admitted last week and will again. Do I think that there can be a mismatch between the hardware and software in a human being? I do believe there is. It's a rare instance, but I do believe it is uh, the case that that can happen. But do we have the tendency to take those instances and normalize them and try to convince lots of other children that if they're feeling uncomfortable at a young age, maybe what their problem is that they're in the wrong body and they need physically to do something about that and to engage in activity that will change their bodies permanently while they're still in their formative years. I find that to be really very scary and almost absurd, very dangerous, that we have adults who would argue that kids who are 12 or 13 years old can be making those kinds of permanent decisions when much of the challenges they're facing are the kinds of challenges every kid faces as they're building toward and going through puberty, the uncertainty and and difficulty of being a human being. I think it's ghoulish. One might even say sorcery. And I think the part that makes it additionally ghoulish is we're turning the children into the sorcerer's apprentices. I'm Seth. He's Hugh. We'll be right back. Bank failures, stock market volatility, a recession possibly on the horizon, inflation. When you think about uh, the vicissitudes of this economy and um, what you might want to invest in, you might want to look for something much more solid, an investment that's not correlated to the stock market or the Fed. And that's where Y-Refi comes in. It's an investment in a portfolio where you can turn your monthly income on or off, compound it, whatever you like, with no loss of principal if you need your money back at any time. There are no fees in the secure collateralized portfolio that delivers an up to 10.25% fixed rate of return. Why Refi is locally based, and I encourage you to stop by their offices. They're up on Scottsdale Road in the 101. I've been there, and I can tell you, you won't be asked to sign a thing. You won't get a sales pitch. They just like talking about what it is that they do. And when you meet with the team at Why Refi, you'll see why I like and trust them so much, and you can as well. A due diligence approved firm, they are offering an up to 10.25% fixed rate of return, as I say. Check them out at investyrefi.com. Invest, the letter Y, then refy.com, or call them at 888-YREFI-34, 888-YREFI-34. Hugh, I think when we think about all these problems in education that we have been talking about for the last hour and all the um, distractions that have been put into our classrooms and all these ancillary things that are novel to the classroom that no one would have uh, no one would have ever thought or deemed imaginable 10 years ago we uh, look and ask ourselves why is it that we get the results we got from the nation's report card uh, last week showing that our 8th graders now 
are doing worse in American history than at any time in the past 25 years. I give you the last hour of this show as to why, because we're not doing what we should be doing, which is teaching American history. We're teaching everything else but that. American history uh, provides the lessons learned over human history to help us understand what works and what doesn't work. If one is interested in maximizing human liberty and opportunity, uh, recognizing that we are all humans and we are flawed. And so in that context, we create rules and regulations, policing opportunities, the police power in government, so that we can make sure that in the collective sense, everyone has an opportunity to maximize their individual liberty without fearing results from someone else. Our country's history demonstrates the great effort to create this opportunity, not just for our country and its citizens, but for others around the world. The United States has worked diligently, and men and women in uniform have risked and given their lives to provide that opportunity to others. We need to understand that legacy and treat it as the valuable gift that's been provided to us long into the future. And I would ask everyone listening to you, Seth, on a daily basis, and those occasionally listening to me, that we continue to recommit ourselves to those values and principles that give rise to the greatest nation ever known in human history and celebrate the great things we have, acknowledging we have problems, but that we can continue to work to overcome them. We are pursuing excellence, not perfection. But we have always done that. Amen. Thank you, Hugh Hallman. I'm Seth Liebson. Thank you, David Dahl. Until tomorrow, God bless you all. Class dismissed.